turn to Matthew chapter 22 as they're taking their seats. And uh, we're going to do a lot of flipping around today just to give you a heads up. Uh, so we'll need to cruise rather quickly from passage to passage. But uh, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray that as we enter into this message that you would use me, your servant, to speak to your people. And God, I pray that we would uh, wrap our lives around your will for our lives and that we would indeed live our lives under the shadow and the shelter of the cross. So God, please help us as a church to, uh, to do those things. And Lord, help us as individuals uh, to live continual lives of repentance and faith in you. And so God, please uh, use me uh, as a mighty way, in a mighty way. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's two passages in Scripture uh, that we call great. Uh, I like to think of the whole thing as great, but uh, specifically there's, there's two places within the Gospel of Matthew where we talk about uh, great passages. The first one is when someone comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? We call that the greatest commandment, when Jesus tells him what it is. Then there's another section in Scripture at the end of Matthew 28. Jesus has come back from the dead, and he's, he's talking to uh, his disciples, and he gives them what we call the Great Commission. If any of you ever die and then come back to life, uh, anything that you say post-resurrection will be great also. Uh, just so you know, that everything that you say when you come back to life qualifies as great. So we've got these two passages, one the Great Commandment, one the Great Commission. And what I want to do uh, this morning is I want to talk uh, big picture about the church. A lot of you guys on an individual basis have asked me things about uh, what's your vision for our church and things like that. And it's an incredibly difficult question to answer uh, because I don't know everyone yet. Uh, if I were you, I would be very skeptical of, of someone giving you a vision for your life and for your church if they don't know your name yet. Which is one reason when election time runs around, I'm a little skeptical of someone giving me a vision for the country when they don't even, they don't even know us. Uh, anyways, that's neither here nor there. But what I want to do today is I want to give you some, some big picture ideas as far as vision goes. What I want to do is to give you principles and then, uh, as we progress forward together, we'll talk about, uh, more detail and how these things are going to look. But I've got five principles for you this morning, or, uh, maybe not principles, but five purposes of the church. A lot of you guys come to this this building that we call a church on a weekly basis, uh, but probably some of you have never given any thought to what our gathering together as a church, our purpose is. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So you guys know the story. There's this wise guy. There's this teacher in town. Uh, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus, and they're trying to find a, a reason to kill him. And so these wise guys get together, and one of them says, okay, we'll, stump, we'll play stump the chump. And they ask Jesus this question. Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And they're hoping that he'll say something something foolish, which Jesus never does. And he says, all the law and the prophets are summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you were to go over to, you don't have to turn here, but if you were to go to Exodus chapter 20, you would find 10 commandments. And the 10 commandments read like this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just make it through all 10. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And so if you've ever looked at the the Ten Commandments in a critical fashion before, not critical as looking to find something wrong with them, but into make a, a fine observation, you'd find that the first four commandments deal strictly with your relationship between you and God. And so the first four commandments are all vertical, how you interact with God. So the first four, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And so Jesus sums up commands one through four by saying this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandments one through four. Then he says this, we'll skip that. So the best, uh, not the best, the first four commandments can be summed up by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, like we said. So the primary purpose of our church, and by the way, when I say our church, I'm not talking about this building. This building's function is to house us when we gather as the church. You following me? So this building in the, the kingdom's view is, is somewhat irrelevant. Right. Uh, if Christ were to come back right now, he would take uh, hopefully all of us. But realistically, he would take most of us. But this church building would be left here because this this church building, this building we call the church doesn't have an eternal value. Your soul does. And so when we talk about church, what I'm talking about is you as individual believers gathering together. That's the church. And so the church or, or believers, when we gather as the church, our primarily our primary function is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the way that we do that, the way that we model that, is through worship. And so worship is the first purpose of the church. And so us as a group, our purpose, when we get together, is to worship God. Psalm 100 says this. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is good. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And so our purpose as a group, number one, is to worship the Lord together. Now, this is interesting. This is going to hopefully convict some of us. You don't come to this house, to this building, to for Jonathan and, and, and Betsy to psych you up and get you ready to worship, right? 
when you come to church, this doesn't say when he's talking about the the Lord's house, they're talking about the temple here. But it says in verse four, you're to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And so sometimes we go into this, this thing we call church with the mentality that all I have to do is get there and that's good enough. And the reality is, is that's false. When you step out of your car, when you turn onto this block, you are to turn onto the block and walk onto the property with a joyful, worshipful spirit. You're not supposed to come here for, for us to psych you up. When you go to a basketball game, they have things like pep squads and dancing girls and all of these other faddish things to get you psyched up to cheer for your team. We don't have those things. Uh, chances are, I don't want to say never, but we're probably never going to give Jonathan a megaphone to psych you up before church starts. We're probably not going to do that. That'd probably be in poor taste. You're supposed to psych yourself up to worship God before you come. Why? Because he's good and his love endures forever. Every morning you wake up, you should be in a state of worship. Number one, because you are allowed to wake up. Because God is that good. We live our lives, like the song said, under the shadow of the cross. And our lives should be worshipful. And when we come together as a group of people, it should be hundreds of us worshiping together in unity. And that's where the strength is. Worship. Let me tell you one quick thing about worship. I told you that we should come here ready to worship. And that's not always easy. Uh, when I was a single guy, I could get to church on time every time. No problems. And then I married someone else who... With the two of us together, we're not then able to get to church on time. And I'm not, I'm not putting the blame on my wife by any means. Uh, but we weren't able to make it to church as a couple together for about a year or two. Then we got better and we could make it to church on time. But then we had children. And then we couldn't figure out how to get to church on time again. And every person added to our family required more and more and more difficulty in getting to church. It, it seems like Honestly, the rest of the week is a piece of cake, but it seems like Sunday morning, Satan runs loose in everything. It's like he's in the iron, he's in the, the dishwasher, he's in the refrigerator. Everywhere you can imagine, Satan's running loose. And you've got, you with families can relate to this. And so what would happen is that we would, we would bust our tails to get to church. But my wife and I wouldn't be friends when we got to church. We would... You're laughing, but you're not friends with your spouse right now. Some of you, some of you, some of you have unresolved, uh, unresolved counseling issues that as soon as you hit the car, you're going to talk about it. Uh, and the reason we know is because you're, <laughs> you come in angry, you act happy, and then we leave angry again. We get in the car angry. That's just, that's the way American church goes. And so, uh, I was, I was sitting in church and I was thinking, you know, my wife and I should be able to worship together, it doesn't make sense that our whole family is is upset, uh, and it wasn't an unhealthy upset. You guys know how life is. Uh, we should be able to come to church together and sit down in a pew and worship, as opposed to sit down in a pew and go, "Oh, thank God I'm here." It it should have been more worship. And so what I did is I, I looked at our family and I said, "Okay, our family, everyone's up by seven o'clock." Which is not good. It's not something I'm proud of. But they're all, all of our kids are up by seven. So this is what I'm going to do. This was when we had probably two children. I said, I'm going to wake up at six and I'm going to get a shower. I'm going to shave. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to do everything I need to do to walk out of the house. And when the first child wakes up, I'm going to be a hundred percent ready to walk out of the door. 
So from 7 to 9.30 when we need to leave, I can do nothing but serve my family so we can get to church and still be friends. And so I would wake up and I would help them and I would, I would get cereal going. I would get all these other things going. And then I would leave the bathroom. Uh, I would take the kids in one place and I would leave Jesse so she could have the other bathroom. And that's what I had to do for about a year in order for us to all go to church and worship. But our primary function as a church is to worship God. You should do whatever you have to do during the week in order to come to this building and meet with these people so that you can worship. If you have issues with people around you, if you have sin you need to confess, or if you have sin that you need to ask forgiveness for, you should do that before you come here so that we can accomplish our first goal or our first purpose, and that is worship. Number two, ministry. Once we do worship together, we should also then do ministry together. He says in Matthew, go back there. Told you we were going to flip all over the place. We're still in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest. Verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you were back in Exodus chapter 20, which you don't have to go there, I'll read them to you. Exodus 20, commandments number 5 through 10. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his maid, his ox, his donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so commandments number 5 through 10 all deal with your relationship with outsiders. So if you, you can take care of commandments 1 through 4, if you will worship, if you will love God, you'll do commandments 1 through 4 if you love him with all your heart. If you will love your neighbor as yourself, you will naturally do commandments number 5 through 10. And so Jesus sums up the law and the prophets in those two statements. So when we do ministry as a church, we should do ministry out of a heart of worship. We, we love God. We worship him. We're thankful for all the things that he's done for us. And then we want to show him love through doing acts of service to other people. Now, some of you may think, uh, well... I don't want to just say you. Some of us may think more highly of ourselves, and we may take credit for a lot of things that we've done. But true ministry isn't done just because you're a nice guy. True ministry is done when you do something out of an overflow of love for Christ. So when you just simply hold the door for somebody, that's not a ministry always. That's you being a nice guy. Ministry, real ministry, hurts. It costs you something, not always money, sometimes time. Ministry is incredibly difficult. Ministry isn't just doing something. It's putting the time and effort into it to do it really well. And so ministry can take many different forms, but think if our church is doing ministry. If our church, now when I say church, I'm talking about the building. I recognize this is confusing. If our church building and all the people in it were to disappear one day, not talking rapture, I'm just saying, if Keshia Baptist Church wasn't here and the people in this building right now were not here, would the community notice? Would the people that are surrounding this building realize now that there's a void in the community outside of a vacant piece of property? 
Would there be any needs in the town that were going unmet? That's a pretty good way to gauge the ministry of the church. So just give it a little bit of thought. This would be something healthy to give some thought to throughout the week. If we all disappeared, would it matter? Is there a void that we would leave behind? Matthew 10, 42, I won't flip there, but just to give you the importance of ministry, in Matthew 10, 42, Jesus tells the people that even a cup of cold water given in my name will not go unrewarded. And so Jesus recognizes the value of giving cold water in his name, something that costs you something. Now, I heard a whole sermon. I don't know how. I don't want to disvalidate sermons because I'm giving you one now. But I heard one about the difficulty of actually getting ice in Jesus' day. He talked about how difficult it would have been to make the trek to a distant mountain, chop a block of ice, and then bring it home and give someone a cold water. So the idea of giving someone a cold water isn't as simple to a bum comes to your door, you go to the refrigerator, push the cup in to get ice, push the button to get water, and now you've given a cup of cold water. This cup of cold water is something that would be ridiculously more difficult to do than just go to your refrigerator and get a cup of water or nonetheless a bottle of water and then give him an extra bottle to send him on his way with. This would have taken sacrifice. This would have hurt because you would have given away something dear to yourself. Now I'm going over to the book of Ephesians. It was here yesterday. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And we're still under the banner of ministry. So our first, our first purpose as a church is to come together and worship. Our second purpose is to come together to do ministry. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So he gave those offices to prepare God's people for works of service. And so he gave, he gave you, me, to prepare you for works of service. He didn't give you, me, your pastor, so that you could come sit in an air-conditioned building and soak up the things I have to say, as foolish as they are at times, and then go home for a week and come back the next week and do the same thing. Christ set up pastors to prepare people for works of service. It's my job, and this is coming up soon. I will, uh, I'll preach my job description from God to you coming up real soon. Uh, I realize that sometimes I'm hard on you. I will be equally as hard on myself when the time comes. Just the, the, the unfair part is, is that I get a week to prepare for it so I can kind of get things in order so that when I dish it out to myself, I'm ready to take it. But you were given a pastor. You were given me so that I could prepare you for works of service. And so we meet together as the body of Christ, as a church, I preach to you God's word. In my preaching, I don't want you to think how great of a God Bobby is. I want you to realize how great of a God Bobby serves. And so if you ever sit around your lunch table and you think, wow, Bobby did a great job, he's amazing, I have failed. If you sit around the lunch table and you say, wow, what a great God we serve, then I feel like I, as your pastor, have succeeded. Because this thing we call church, the purpose of the church is not me, and it is not you. It's Christ. 
And so when I preach to you, I, I try to boldly proclaim how great Christ is so that we will live righteous lives and then we will glorify Christ by doing acts of service. So you should leave the church on fire for Christ or ready to get sin out of your life. And then you should go into the rest of your week ready to show the world how great Christ is through acts of service. So that's number two. Number one is worship. Number two is ministry. Number three, the third purpose of the church is evangelism. If you go to Matthew chapter 28, there's a passage that all of you guys are familiar with. Now, I realize I'm cruising along at a pretty good clip, but I didn't want to break this up into two different, two different weeks. I didn't want to have to talk about the same thing two weeks in a row. So, the third purpose of the church is evangelism. And here we have Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So back up in verse 18, Jesus comes to him and says, I've been given all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. If you are going to make a disciple, what do you have to do first? You have to win someone to the Lord before you can make a disciple out of them. And so our church's third purpose is reaching others with the gospel. We call it evangelism. Uh, remember I said the great commandment is one of our purposes. We're going to love God out of worship. We're going to love others' ministry. Now, the great commission says we are to win others to Christ through evangelism. Now, if you don't think that's important, everybody always talks about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, you are actually given five Great Commissions. Each of the gospel has its own spin on the Great Commission. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you missed it in all of the gospels, you're given it again when Jesus says all authority. Nope, that's the Great Commission. He says, I just lost it. I was going to say the Great Commission instead. Um, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so five different times within a very short amount of time, Jesus tells you, your job is to go and to make disciples. Your job is to go and spread the fame of Christ to the ends of the earth. People should be able to see the way that you worship. They should be able to see the way that you serve. And evangelism, as you'll see, winning people to Christ should come naturally. There's a passage we're going to read at the end of the very end of the sermon that encompasses all of these passages. And evangelism is the last thing listed because it should be the most natural thing that comes to you. People should be dying to know about Christ by the way that your life is lived. One of the reasons that evangelism is so difficult one of the reasons that we have to have evangelism training sessions is because it is so hard for Christians to make the turn in conversations with people to the gospel. Normally, our conversations are as such where they are not gospel-centered and they're not worthy of the gospel. And so it's difficult to make that shift to begin to tell someone about Christ. That's why evangelism is so hard. But if your natural life was worship and service, the gospel would come readily to you and it would be the, it would be a very easy transition into sharing the gospel with people.
but our lives forfeit us that opportunity. So evangelism is the third purpose. Number four, this is Ephesians chapter two. Our fourth purpose is a church is going to be a fellowship. Now, maybe not as you're thinking. It's never as, as easy as it's supposed to be. But fellowship is one of our purposes. A lot of times we, as a church, we have what we call fellowship, but all we're doing is getting together. And just because you get together as a group doesn't mean that you've had good Christian fellowship. Sometimes we get together as a group of Christians, and it might have been better if we didn't, because Christ is not always glorified through the things that we say and do together. True? Sometimes that's true. Sometimes we leave places and we we wish we hadn't been in the first place, so we wouldn't have had that conversation, or we wouldn't have done those things with a group of Christians. It's just a sad reality. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so you were an alien to God. You were an alien to Christ. But then you put your faith in Christ You put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you became a believer in Christ. And when you passed through the waters of baptism, you became a Christian. Now, you can be a Christian prior to baptism, but the symbol of baptism is that you've died to Christ. You've, excuse me, you've died to sin. You no longer want sin. You've repented. You've, you've put your faith in Christ. And so you're, 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 Put under the water, symbolic of being buried, and then you're raised to a new life in Christ. And when a believer gets saved and they, they want to get baptized, when they come out of that water right there, you as a people, you as God's chosen people, should erupt into an applause because that person, that person who just went under the water is now one of us and they have fellowship with us as a child of God. That's what baptism is all about. And so fellowship, this what we're doing now, this gathering together as God's people is fellowship. Now, we can gather together outside of this building as God's people and have good fellowship. If we do the things that God told us to do. If we, like Ephesians says, are, are pushing one another to good works. You should spur one another on to good deeds. When I come to your house to visit you, we're having fellowship. We should be encouraging one another to keep doing good things, keep fighting the fight, and keep finishing the race so that we can finish well. That's fellowship. When a group of, now, older ladies, you need to know that I'm going to pick on you for this because I think this is a very easy one to do, and I don't see a lot of churches doing it. It says that older ladies should encourage younger women to love their husbands. Now, you don't have to be a spiritual giant to encourage someone to love their spouse. But when ladies get together in fellowship, you older ladies, if you want to have true fellowship, you should at times be encouraging younger women to love their husbands. Now, why do you do that? Because most of the time, those younger women married knotheads and they need to be encouraged. You you messed up. 
you're, you're, in, you're in it to win it now. You have, you've already done the damage. Now love your husband like you're supposed to. I tried to tell you beforehand, don't marry him. Now you did marry him. You're stuck. You've got to love him. I would wonder if more Christian marriages would still be together if older women were encouraging younger women to love their husbands. I wonder if when we got together for, uh, I'm not picking on this, we're having an ice cream fellowship with the, the Joy Club. I would wonder if when organizations like the Joy Club get together, if we encouraged one another and pushed one another towards godliness, if we, if we wrote letters to those younger women, if we made phone calls to those, the younger generations and encouraged them in their faith, if we would have less young people falling away from the church. We have, we have traded fellowship for merely spending time with each other. When the reality is, is that we need to have genuine fellowship where we are building one another up in Christ. So our purposes as a church, our worship, we need to come together and we need to worship God, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to do ministry together. We need to love others as we love ourselves. We need to uh, do evangelism together. Out of an overflow of our heart of worship and serving others, we need to do evangelism. And then we also need to have fellowship where we fellowship with those people who are now have been through the baptismal waters and are a part of our fellowship. You cannot, you cannot put a price on spending time with other Christians. It's invaluable. Especially if you're spending time with other Christians who are of the caliber that they're pushing you towards better things. Number five also comes out of Matthew chapter 22 and verse 18. But I want you to see it there. We are to make disciples. Before you can make a disciple, you have to win someone to the faith. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's verse 19. After you make the disciple, after you convert them, you need to baptize them in the name of the Father. That brings them into the fellowship. Uh, baptism is, is incredibly important. That's why it makes the list. Uh, as Baptists, whether you realize this or not, uh, we believe that baptism, baptism is of the utmost importance, so much so that you cannot be a member of a Baptist church unless you've been baptized by immersion. Now, whether we agree with it or not, that's, that's what we do. Because baptism is an incredibly strong symbol of what you've done. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so we're not only to have fellowship, we're not only to worship, we're not only to uh, do ministry together and evangelism together. We are to uh, grow them and teach them the things that God has taught us. And so our last one falls under the banner of discipleship. The book of Colossians, we've got two more verses we're going to, then we'll, we'll land this plane. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 says this. This is Paul speaking. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We do this so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. To this end I labor Struggling with all his energy, which is so powerfully working in me, or so powerfully works in me. 
So Paul says that we work for this endeavor, not just to win people to Christ, but to present them to Christ in full maturity. If we were to, if we were to have a dog and pony show, and we were to bring in Christian rock bands, and we were to bring in all of these other wild things, and we were to win thousands of people to Christ, and then do nothing with them but keep them as babies in Christ, I would have failed you as a pastor. Because our job is not just to win countless souls to Christ, but our job, or my job as a pastor, is to present the, the members of this church to Christ mature in the faith. That's part of my job. And so we don't just want tons of people to get saved and stay babies in Christ. We want to do things, do something called discipleship, where we present people to Christ mature in the faith. The church needs to be doing things where you can grow in the faith. You can learn things that you want to learn. This is one thing that churches are, are really are really bad at. I'm just going to level with you. I'm not talking about us specifically. I'm talking about as a whole. When... Um, I shared this with a group on Wednesday night. I was a youth and college pastor for, for 10 years before I came here. And one of the saddest things that would ever happen should have been one of the most exciting things that ever happened. Parents would bring their children to me and tell me that their child wanted to become a Christian. To which I would say, great, that's amazing. I am so excited that your child wants to be a Christian. Just so you know, I want all of your children to become Christians also. I think Christ offers the greatest life that could ever be lived, and it's you can't put a price on it. But they would bring their child to me, and then I would say, okay, he wants to be a Christian, great. Go tell your child about Christ and help them become a Christian. And they would look at me, and they would say, I don't know how. And so the reality is, is that a lot of churches are full of parents who don't know how to lead their own children to the Lord. So then what happens is that the child does end up getting saved. Somebody tells the, the child about Christ. The child puts their faith in Christ. And then they, they come down front and they join the church. And they want to get baptized. And so we baptize the child. But we don't have a plan to take that 8-year-old from 8 years old to being fully mature in Christ. And that's what many churches are missing. If you're going to be a vibrant church... A church that Christ would be glad to call his own. You need some sort of plan to take children, young believers, and walk them through a thought-out process so that at a certain age you can say, Okay, by this time we believe they have everything that they need to be a mature Christian. Now, everybody's not going to fit that mold and everybody's not going to follow that and, and end up being mature. But you at least need something as a body to put your children through so that you can raise them up and they can be mature. So often, we are not doing this discipleship thing. And our children who came down at eight years old, who got baptized, they go off to college and they get whisked away by some guy with a PhD and a lab coat. And we never see our children again a lot of times. And so if we as a church were doing this number five, this discipleship, that might not happen as much. Now, last, last place we're going to turn to. Acts, Acts chapter 2, and then we'll close. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is after the Holy Spirit's come down at Pentecost. 
This is after the, the disciples have been equipped to go out. The church is growing. The church is increasing. And this is what it says. About, this is how the church, the believers in Christ, are described. It says, They, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. You see, now we have discipleship and we have fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. All the believers were together. There was unity. And had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. So they had discipleship. They had fellowship. They had ministry. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They had worship. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Listen to this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so the early church in this one small paragraph is defined as doing the five things that I told you about. They're worshiping. They're serving. They're doing ministry. They're... I should be able to remember them, shouldn't I? This is what we're pushing. They're, they're doing fellowship together. They're having good fellowship. They're having discipleship. They're growing, they're learning, they're, they're getting good teaching. And then it says, as an afterthought, the Lord added to their number daily. We want to do something, uh, the men of our church. The association's having this, uh, this fire alarm training. I think it's silly, let me just level with you, that I have to go sit somewhere for two hours and have someone show me how to install a smoke detector. Okay? I just think it's silly. But... If you want 10 free smoke detectors, that's what you have to do. They want to put you through this. They want to give you a few pointers, not just in the smoke alarm installation, but as how to handle other things that may arise too. Okay, this is, this is actually on their hand. This is them being a good steward with their smoke detectors. I would like, this, is, uh, this was actually not my idea. This is Randy's idea. He told us about it. I would like for the men of our church to go to this training, and I'd like for you to get your 10 free smoke alarms. And then we'd like to show other people in the church how to do what we're supposed to do. And then I'd like for us to fly a banner outside the church that says something about October being fire safety month. And we're giving away smoke alarms. And I'd like to see the people of our church go into unchurched people's houses and put in free smoke alarms. It won't cost you a penny. And then the Wednesday following the training, I'm going to have some training of our own during our Wednesday night service. And I'm going to tell you how to share the gospel with somebody once you get into their house. I'm going to show you how to make the transition from giving something free away to sharing the good news of the gospel with them. The reality is, this is going to sound harsh, who cares if the town burns down if the people don't know Christ? If someone's house burns down, if we save their house from burning down, in the the big scheme of things, that doesn't matter as much as it does saving their soul from an eternity in fire. And that's why we're doing this thing with the smoke alarms. This is ministry. This is taking your time and your resources and going into someone's house and then doing something that costs you something. Listen, I don't ever want to be accused of wasting your time. But this is a great opportunity for you to get into somebody's house and tell them about Christ. Because nothing else in this world matters as much as he does. This is an easy way for us to do it. And so this is a this is an easy thing for us to do, and it's something I would like to see us do. I'd love you guys to jump on board, and we'll follow Randy the whole way.
Okay? Hasn't been an exactly uh, convicting sermon, I don't think, but as we go into our time of invitation, I'd love for you to stew on these purposes of the church. Um, we talked about worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. Uh, anything that we do as a church should fall somewhere within these five purposes. When you get together with your committees and you're planning out your year, your events should be geared around these five purposes. If your event that you're planning doesn't fit under one of these five purposes, you might consider scratching it and planning something else. Something that'll, that'll benefit the church as a whole and fall under this umbrella. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and then Jonathan will lead us in our invitation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you that we can gather together with like-minded believers. God, I pray that we would that we would be busy about these five things, and I pray that the world around us would see us purposefully serving you. Lord, I pray that we would never be seen as, as wasting a lot of time, but I pray that everything we do would have some sort of purpose and meaning behind it, that the world around us can see what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then wish they were doing the same thing. And so, God, I pray we would live our lives in such a way that, uh, that the gospel just naturally overflows. And Lord, I pray that as we go forward as a body, that we would do so in a purposeful fashion and that, uh, that we would be a church that you would be proud to call your bride. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming. I appreciate your attentiveness and uh, you guys being here. You guys are always a joy to see. Uh, don't forget, if you need anything during the week, give me a holler. If there's uh, any needs that arise, uh, do let us know. We can't know unless you tell us. And so we, we appreciate your phone calls. Uh, other than that, uh, I hope to see you again next week. I wanted to tell you right before we finish that uh, we are offering uh, something for your children on Wednesday nights. I told you that I never want to be accused of, of wasting any of your times. And I want you to know that uh, as a church, uh, Wednesday night prayer meetings uh, are not just prayer. Uh, it would be fine if they were, but they're definitely not a waste of time. So I want to encourage you quickly and briefly to, uh, to try to make Wednesday nights a priority. We're offering something for your children now. And uh, we're going through, I'm actually teaching through prayer. And uh, uh, I would say so far, so good. It's, it's been, been pretty good. This is also a time where at the end, uh, we're taking some time and we're praying for the lost people that we know. Uh, we give a lot of lip service as the church to Christ is the greatest thing that could ever could ever come into someone's life, and then you can probably count on one hand the amount of hours that you've spent praying for lost people, and uh, it's a tragedy. And so we're trying to set apart some side, some time to uh, to, to pray, and uh, and then we have a time of teaching in between. So, uh, Ed, if you wouldn't mind, close us in prayer.